Hey everybody, Kevin here with This One's a Doozy, and I am very excited because we have a special episode this week for you. And uh, my love, why don't you tell everybody real quick about what we're doing different this week compared to our usual Thursday releases. Yeah, so usually we've got a fresh original story every single Thursday without fail. We have not missed one. We wanted to continue in that tradition. Mm -hmm. However, it is May mayhem in our house. Yes. And so in order to give you guys something, we decided to upload a Patreon episode as a little Patreon sample Mm -hmm. so that you guys have something fresh to listen to and maybe a little incentive to hop on in and get access to more episodes like it over on our Patreon. Yeah. And I would say that some of these episodes on Patreon are some of my personal favorites. Wow. So yeah, I think everybody would benefit from hopping in over there. But here is a very special episode. And without any further ado, here is our special Patreon exclusive, taken out of the vault, now for everybody to hear. Let's go. This one's a doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. (sighs) All in one breath. (laughs) Yes, but nobody here needs to know about that. Yeah. Because you already know. So many production secrets are unveiled in the Patreon exclusives. I know. This is is where the the legends exist and learn and grow together. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. This is it. Wow. Well, I say that too much. I catch okay. myself going wow, wow all the time. Like the Owen Wilson. Wow. <laughs> yes. wow. Wow. I like started saying it ironically, kind of like the word fam. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just like a staple you're, you're stuck with part it. of my speech. You can't get rid of it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, well, mm. before we get going, let's ask the first question. Okay. What are you drinking tonight? Against my better judgment, I am having a latte. <laughs> nice, yes. At eleven twenty-three p.m. Technically, because of the time change, it's, it's like in my my biological clock says it's only ten twenty-three p.m. That's true. So that's true. It feels like it's ten twenty-three, except for it feels like it's like twelve twenty-three because it's been of a how long day. Yeah, yeah, it's been a really long day. <laughs> I like really squeaked oh. into getting this one done. Oh man, I'm sure. Well, I am drinking. The last sun kissed in our house. Mm. Uh, and in case anybody just really had a hankering for orange soda, sun kissed is pretty good. It is. It's not the best orange soda, but it's a good orange soda. Mm. It's also caffeinated, which we learned together recently. <laughs> and uh, this whole time I thought it was basically just like carbonated juice. And now I'm realizing that it's it's actually uh, much, much worse. Got a little bite to <laughs> much its worse bark. For you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you have a our, our special Patreon game, don't mm-hmm. you? Yes, I do. Okay. 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 So this is Headline Hijinks. This is the segment where I read you two bonkers headlines, and you have to decide which headline is real and which one I made up. So okay. I'll read each headline two times. Okay? Yes. All right. So headline one. Twice convicted arsonist countersues own attorney, comma, claims defamation of character. <laughs> headline two. Zombie-eyed woman dressed as pig in swimsuit busted for DUI. All right, so I'm going to take those back one more time. Headline one, twice convicted arsonist countersues own attorney, comma, claims defamation of character. Headline two, zombie-eyed woman dressed as pig in swimsuit busted for DUI. Wow. One of those is real and one one of those those is I made up. (laughs) I'm going to say the one that you made up is the one that has the comma in it, the first one. Dang it. Am I right? Yeah. Yes. You're three for three on this. You're like really good at this game, or I'm really bad at it. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. There's there's certain things that I know about you to be true that are not necessarily tells, mm. but I can go, oh, there's a comma in there, which is just like, it's just a unique enough feature 
some unnecessary punctuation that yes. gave me away. Well, you're also giving me hints of what not to do later. Well, you already done that one. So now yeah. I know. Yeah. Now I'll never know for sure if you're doing it for one oh, reason or another. Oh, that's true. But, Ooh. Yeah. But there's other tells. And I will say, uh, so in high school, I took a journalism class. And mm-hmm. in that class, we had to, uh, I, I don't know why I remember this project so well, but we had to find headlines that used comma in place of the word and. And it was very hard in 2007 to find those headlines mm. because no one was doing that apparently at that point in time. So and now I'm very aware of commas and headlines. <laughs> Noted. Noted. Oh, well, mm. my love, why don't you go ahead and bring us into our Patreon exclusive episode? All right. So we're going to talk true crime for okay. this Patreon episode because I feel like so far we haven't talked tackled a true crime story for patreon yet okay yeah so because what what was the first one oh we did the bleeding house Mm -hmm. no crime was ever proven the watcher Mm -hmm. no crime was ever proven so Mm -hmm. now let's do a crime let's do a crime let's talk about a crime oh (laughs) we're not going to do any crimes we're going to talk about some crimes okay all right so in february of 1949 police pulled up to a warehouse in west sussex in southeastern england located on leopold road the small brick structure was very unassuming upon first glance, just mm. like any old shop. Yeah. But when the officers stepped inside, not only did they discover large drums and containers of sulfuric acid with a sinister purpose, but outside they discovered remnants of humans that the acid had been used to dissolve. Mm. Today we're learning about John George Haig, otherwise known as the acid bath murderer. Mm-hmm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right. All right, so John George Haig was born on July 24th, 1909 in England to his parents, John, Robert, and Emily. Growing up, John's family was part of a branch of Protestantism known as the Plymouth Brethren or the Peculiar People. Oh, I've heard about these. Yes, I've heard of them. Members of this sect lived pretty reclusive lives because they believed that everyone in the outside world was evil and like bent on corrupting them and leading them astray (laughs) from like the path. Yes. John's parents were no exception, and so his father actually built a 10-foot concrete wall around their home, forbidding friendships and all activities that weren't either reading your Bible or listening to Bible stories or playing piano. Those were the three permitted activities. Pretty good activities, I guess. It's not so bad. Kevin, (laughs) he's a little kid. Can you imagine telling our kids anything like that <laughs> you may only play piano or read a bible and that's it i mean the piano will keep you busy for a long time so. kevin you are really <laughs> not taking cues at all on this. i know you're just trolling me um, but i'm like a little offended <laughs> i'm just impressed that they valued music so much to say no you know they what? did not value music they so did. much they did kevin, they wanted i don't know, know how an instrument <laughs> That is what you gathered from anything that I just said. Piano's a bar instrument, so, you know. Okay, 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 okay. You're killing me. That's terrible. That's so bad. He's going to be a great pianist someday. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. (laughs) Side-eyeing you. So from a young age, John lived in constant fear of making mistakes, believing that God was watching him at every moment, just waiting for him to slip up so that he could punish him. That's sad. One element of this is that John Sr. had a bluish colored blemish on his head that never went away. So when young John asked about the mark, his dad told him that it was a mark given to him by God from sinning in his younger years. So the fact that his mother didn't have a mark like it Mm -hmm. validated that claim for young John. And so he kind of lived in this constant like panic and fear about whether or not his behavior would lead to him getting a mark as well, Mm. which is really really twisted and sad twisted manipulative behavior modification for the sake of behavior modification is like never gonna bear anything yeah lively yeah (laughs) not Mm. in a good way at least so yeah that was a real bummer to read yeah so for discipline in scare quotes john's mother would hit him with the bristled end of a hairbrush and that would actually cause him to bleed because they Mm. would like puncture his skin Uh uh-huh which is, ugh. so he would later claim that he would lick the blood off of his wounds and that that was the thing that kind of awakened his taste for human blood, which, believe it or not, will come into play in this episode. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, like, that moment was his little 
light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm, this stuff is not so bad. It's <laughs> wow. kind of how he handled it. So as a child, the only friends John had were his pets, mm-hmm. which interestingly enough, he seemed to treat with lots of attention and love. There were no stories that he ever harmed any of his pets. And in fact, there are many stories of John having really sweet interactions with any animal that he came across. Hmm. Loved animals. Yeah. One thing that John would talk about later was his super dark, scary dreams that he would have throughout his whole life. When he was very young, he claimed that he dreamed, he claimed this later about when he was young. Just to clarify, he claimed that he dreamed that he was in a forest and suddenly all of the trees turned into bleeding crucifixes. Hmm. So that's a little bit heavy metal. That is definitely some heavy bloody, metal, yes. Some bloody crucifix trees <laughs> in the forest. All of the trees were Just bloody. Yeah. Slayer playing in the background. And <laughs> Just <laughs> softly yeah. in the distance. <laughs> so as the years wore on, John would loosen up a little bit and start doing things that his parents had previously labeled as sinful. So when he did these things and his parents didn't punish him, and when he didn't grow a mark as a punishment from God, oh. John's wheels kind of began to turn. Like, yeah. hmm, I've spent years in fear of sinning or making mistakes, and now I'm seeing that there are truly no consequences for any actions of mine. And so I can kind of just get whatever I want, do whatever Yeesh. I want without fear at all. Oh. Which, like, I just, I would love to hear professional analysis of yeah. what that kind of mental whiplash would be like and how this feels to me obviously unprofessional unsolicited opinion here this feels to me like the perfect recipe for like baking your own sociopath Mm -hmm. like oh wow yeah like really yeah so because now anything is testable any Mm -hmm. any moral good any moral question any um really any decision that you were to make is now up in the air if it's good or bad. Right. Well, and be, yeah, beyond it being testable, all of it seems at least permissible. Yeah. Because none of the bad things that I was told would happen have right. happened. Right. And it's so easy to see how it starts small and then escalates the way mm-hmm. that it does as we go. So kind of oh, log okay. that away. Okay. Okay. From what I could find, John was afforded a pretty good education and he was a solid student in the realm of like the academic side. Hmm. He sang in the choir at his school, which was a private grammar school in Wakefield that he'd earned academic scholarships in order to attend. He grew in skill in playing both the piano and the organ and was one of those kids that would become interested in like if he would become interested in something, all he had to do was like study it, kind of practice, and he could get good at it really fast. Hmm. So he's a, a kind of a natural learner in that way. However, he had quickly earned himself a reputation among the teachers for being like a mischievous little guy. He'd pull pranks on teachers and students and would get busted several times forging teachers' signatures. Ooh. Log that one away as well. Yeah. In high school, he left his studies and joined the workforce. That was pretty common back in the day. And Mm. while John never returned to school once he left, he found many job opportunities and went down several career paths. Mm. His first work experience took place when John became an apprentice at an auto mechanic shop. John loved cars and the idea of motor engineering was super exciting to him, but he hated dirt. (laughs) So that job didn't really (laughs) work out for obvious reasons. Interesting. He made his way in and out of various jobs, many of them teaching him valuable skills for jobs that he would get in the future. He worked as a clerk at a school, an underwriter for an accounting firm, and that sort of stuff. Wow. And so it was during this time that he developed a real taste for like the finer things in life. He was yeah. making his own money. He was seeing like little glimmers of personal success. Mm-hmm. And so the desire to kind of fatten up his bank account as much as possible, no matter what, was beginning to grow as well. Hmm. Unfortunately, John's taste for the finer things, while also refusing to do the work necessary to earn those things for himself, led to him getting fired and into trouble with the law for a few things, like theft and attempting to sell vehicles that didn't belong to him, forgery, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. John began dressing super fancy. He bought himself an expensive red car, and he used his smarts to manipulate and dazzle the people around him, from prospective employers to women that he was interested in. So he was mm. like a real schmoozer. Yeah. He could charm his way into getting the things he wanted. And he was, like, for the time, conventionally handsome, even mm-hmm. though I hate his mustache. I'm just going to be really, <laughs> really transparent. 
not for me at all. Not your thing. But he was like sparkly blue eyes and like the quaffed hair and like the fancy suits, Uh all that. So it was really easy Hmm. for him to employ his looks and his charm to lower the guard of people around him. Remind me, what what year range is this all happening So this is probably some 1930s-ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And his like young adult life. That makes sense. That was a great question. So in 1934, (laughs) John (laughs) met a woman who he was immediately drawn to. Her name was Beatrice or Betty Hammer. (laughs) After sweeping her off her feet, John and Betty quickly got married. One element of this was that he'd essentially tricked Betty into believing that he was way wealthier than he actually was. So poor Betty really had, she had no idea who she was even married to. Yeah. Shortly after they were married on July 6th, 1934, they moved in with John's parents, Hmm. which like I can imagine that being a good setup or I mean, I guess I can't imagine that being a good (laughs) setup for any single person under that roof. Right. Like. That would have been hard. Yes. There was added tension because John and Betty were not attending church, nor did either of them profess any kind of faith, Mm -hmm. which was upsetting for the hyper-religious parents. Sure. But I am going to give them credit for helping John and Betty out as newlyweds. Like Mm -hmm. it does seem they were like they were trying to build some sort of bridge there Hmm. and help them get on their feet since it was like a pretty whirlwind fast marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing I would love to learn more about where it's like, I wonder what their intentions were. Were they trying to control John? Were they actually trying to help him? It it seems to me like they were. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, because they could have been just building a bridge with their son. Right. Who they've lost all things in common with probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard to know like what that would look like. And and yeah, it, it comes out of the question like you just asked. Is it for controlling purposes or is it? just because they love their son. Right. It's hard to know. We'll never know, probably. So around this same time, John was effectively jobless, but he didn't really want to work at Mm. all. Mm -hmm. So he started his own business. Scare quotes again. Oh. Turns out that John's idea of running a business was attempting to fraudulently sell vehicles via document forgery. (laughs) So John was quickly caught and arrested for this in October of that year and was sentenced to 15 months in prison And within a month of getting caught, Betty filed for divorce. Yeah. Shortly after they got divorced, Betty visited him one time in prison to inform him that when he was arrested, she'd found out that she was pregnant Mm. and she had placed their daughter. It was a daughter for adoption. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Hmm. John calmly just said something like, oh, oh, well, like you and I were never really actually married anyways, because like I'm already married to someone else. I was married to someone before you and like we never got divorced. So. Blah, 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 which was obviously a lie. Yeah. But it was enough for Betty to just go back to the house, pack up her stuff, and move away. And she actually never saw or spoke to him ever again. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Never saw or spoke to him, put up their only child together for adoption, Mm -hmm. like started totally over. But that's that's crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And how hard it would have been at that time, like with very little resources. Yeah. So I hope that she oh, went man. on and just like lived her life and yeah. was happy and yeah. yeah. And I couldn't find anything else about her. So yeah. well, obviously her and and well, I guess I don't know anything about the daughter. Did the daughter does the daughter come back up at all? Mm-mm. Yeah. So probably a closed adoption. Probably she may not even ever have known right. who her parents were. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. You wild. never hear about that anymore. No, not like this. I mean, there's everything's tracked now, too, so it's a little bit different. But, right. Wow. Okay. Finally, John finished serving his prison time. When he got out, the Plymouth Brethren Church fully excommunicated him, and shortly afterwards, so did his parents who couldn't deal with the shame of the whole ordeal, mm. the crimes that he committed, the yeah. prison time, and him being excommunicated from their church. That's pretty and they hard. Were, I mean, they were very also super embarrassed about him mm-hmm. getting divorced, their first grandchild being placed for adoption without their knowledge because they didn't even know until John told them. Oh, wow. So that Betty was ever even pregnant. Later. Yeah. So I don't wow. think that they knew at all from what I understand. I obviously could have mm-hmm. missed something, but it seems to me like they didn't find out till later. Wow. Which would Jeez. be, that would be a heavy thing to learn. Yeah. And you know, all of this was a big deal. So he was out From there, John went on to one of his few actually successful and worthwhile ventures. Along with a childhood friend, John went into the dry cleaning business. Things were going really well. 
John enjoyed the freedom of being his own boss, working with a friend that he'd had his whole life, and the money that was pretty steadily coming in from his work. Hmm. Unfortunately, though, John's friend would be killed in a motorcycle accident, which without that friend, the business was forced to close down. And I do, I know I'm not the only person Mm. in this one. I sincerely wonder that if that accident didn't happen, if John would have stayed the course and kept himself out of trouble and away from harming innocent people. Mm. But it's another one of those things about his life that like we'll never know, obviously, because it didn't play out that way. Yeah. John Mm. packed his bags and headed to London in 1936. It was during this time that John began to spiral away from a kind of wannabe con man who's like mostly harmless Mm -hmm. and down a path of violence instead. Oh no. At first, things started out pretty slowly. While he was looking for work, he stumbled upon an ad looking for someone to be a chauffeur at a local amusement park. And lo and behold, when he went in to apply, he was so likable that he was hired on the spot. Wow. The man who hired him was William McSwan, the millionaire owner of the amusement park. Oh, jeez. John and William quickly hit it off, and he was promoted to maintenance man at the park on top of his role as chauffeur. Given his background in mechanics, this was a really good fit for John, mm, and William's yeah. generosity towards him quickly turned into a seems to be a genuine friendship. Hmm. The two friends would go out for drinks together, hang out at work and outside of work, and they loved to have conversations about like high-end clothing and fancy cars because mm. they were both knowledgeable about those things. Shortly after landing a job that was pretty much made for him, John was introduced to William's parents, Donald and Amy McSwan, who embraced John for his hard work and capability. Very quickly after his first promotion, John got another one. He was promoted to manager. Hmm. So things are really looking up for him. He was being given opportunity after opportunity to blaze a really great trail for himself. But about a year after getting hired at the amusement park, John decided he was sick of his job, and so he quit in favor of being his own boss again. Mm-hmm. John decided to jump back into the world of fraud. He mm. assumed a fake identity, which was William Cato Adamson, and referred to himself as a solicitor. And he kind of puffed up his non-existent credentials by name dropping <laughs> various successful companies, promising his clients shares at rock bottom rates that were oh. like a guaranteed payout, basically. Yeah. And so the trouble was that not only did the shares not exist, But when he would get the checks, he would cash them and then Mm -hmm. just bounce. He would disappear. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. As soon as disgruntled clients would come and knock in, he would hightail it out of there to a different area of London and continue on with that scheme. This turned out to be pretty lucrative, obviously. Yeah. And, I mean, he was, at this time, always wearing the best suits. He had the most expensive offices and, Mm -hmm. like, the coolest parts of town. And overall, he really played this character. Hmm. Eventually, though, he began to get a reputation for being a swindler and, as luck would have it, when John sent out a letter informing an old client about a new round of shares at a shockingly low cost, the jig was up. Oh, The thing that caught the attention of this client was the fact that John slash William Cato Adamson had -hmm. spelled his name wrong, which for whatever reason alerted the client that this was a shady deal. It was that Mm -hmm. misspelling that he's like, wait a minute. His own name spelled wrong. His own fake name. Yeah, yeah, his own fake name spelled wrong. He's like, wait a second, (laughs) something's off here. Didn't even spell his own name right. Yeah. So the client quickly called police, who immediately looked into the case and discovered the massive massive scam that John had been pulling. Jeez. This time, John was given a four-year sentence for fraud. Mind you, this happened barely more than a year after he was released from prison the first time he was in prison for fraud. Oh, man, time, okay. You're, you're explaining this, and it sounds like a lot of time is passing because a lot of things have happened. Mm-hmm. He's got this new job, promotions, all this stuff, but it really has not been long. Like, yeah, he got that job out of uh, at the amusement park like very quickly after yeah. he got out of prison. He was there for like somewhere around a year mm-hmm. and jumped straight into yeah. fraud and business. And all that. All that stuff with his family happened mm-hmm. right out of right out of getting out of prison too. Like mm-hmm. a lot went down in just a, about a year's time, right? Really, about three years time because he got married. Yeah, he got in trouble, got sent to prison for the first time. Mm-hmm. So like this is all a very small chunk of time, right? Between his like yeah. early mid twenties to like his early. 30s is when all of this took place, which is crazy. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He once again served his time and was released, but was quickly given another sentence of 21 months on more charges of fraud and theft. 
It was during this time in prison that John realized what the real problem was and how he'd been doing things. He was targeting young, sharp businessmen or like middle-aged rich dudes Mm -hmm. that like had a sharp eye. Mm. Guys that would catch on to his antics and turn him in. The other problem was that he left his victims alive. Oh, that's the problem. Which simply, yeah, that's got to be the issue. (laughs) That's the one. Which obviously wouldn't do if he ever wanted to stay out of prison and make money. Yeah. That's just like, dude, you had so many things handed to you that you actually could have ran with that Mm could have been a really great deal for you. Right. Like you could have actually had these things you wanted and earned them in like a really honest way. So now, obviously, John could have served his time in prison and gotten a job and worked his way back up after his release. I'm sure that if he would have reached back out to William McSwan, like immediately out of prison, that he would have had a job waiting for him where Mm -hmm. he could have really thrived, but it would never be. He decided that he was going to target older, wealthy women that could be charmed by like a handsome young man who appeared Mm. to be wealthy as well. And then he would murder them and gain access to all of their assets. Jeez. But how to do it without getting caught and landing back in prison? That was the question. With nothing but time on his hands, John would spend long hours in the prison library, combing over legal textbooks, looking for some insight until he found what he considered to be a foolproof solution. Corpus delecti, a.k.a. the law in Britain stating that if nobody is found that there can't be a murder conviction. Obviously, okay, just as a sidebar. I way oversimplified that, and I will more thoroughly explain that later on. But John read this term. Mm-hmm. He skimmed the section, and what he gathered was no body, no crime. Wow. Okay. That's Jeez. that's really what he, mm-hmm. really his takeaway was no mm-hmm. body, no crime. So the next question was like, okay, how am I going to kill someone and make their bodies disappear? Never to be found again. John took a page out of French murderer Georges Alexander Serre's book. Mm-hmm. He would murder his victims and then dissolve their bodies in sulfuric acid. Wow. Side note, Serre was caught and executed via the guillotine. <laughs> so I have no clue how that could have been, like, how that could have not been a cautionary tale or, like, some sort of right. light bulb moment right. that maybe this was a bad idea and maybe <sighs> he should just, like, get a real job. It's kind of like the people who, like, they see an article on Facebook and they just read the headline and then share it. Without actually reading it, thinking it says one thing. This is my worldview now. And then it says the complete opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Or they only read the first three paragraphs and they're like, oh, that's enough. I got it. Or they don't realize it's like from a satire site. (laughs) That's my favorite. Yeah. that's. I feel like that's kind of what happened here is he read enough of the story to be like, oh, that's a good idea. And then just stopped. Mm -hmm. And, uh, oh, man. Mm -hmm. It really is a bummer. What a bummer. Yeah. It really, really is a bummer. So now... John dedicated his time in prison to getting himself familiar with sulfuric acid. Hmm. He would go over to the metal shop in the prison because sulfuric acid was regularly used there. Hmm. He would conduct a pretty gnarly set of experiments on mice. So he'd catch these mice and would determine how much acid it would take to dissolve a body and roughly how long it would take for the job to be complete. So he learned that it would take a mouse roughly 30 minutes to be fully dissolved by the acid. And so he estimated that it would take somewhere between one and two days to fully dissolve a human body based on what he learned in his little messed up Mm, science experiment. uh, So gross and like so cruel. Finally, John was released in 1943. He got a job as an accountant right out of prison and he kind of laid low for a minute, opting not to jump straight back into a life of crime, Mm -hmm. instead deciding to wait until he found his perfect victim to swindle, murder, and disappear via a vat of sulfuric acid. In the summer of 1944, John ran into his old friend and employer, William McSwan. Mm. The two picked up right where they left off and went out for drinks at a local pub called The Goat. Hmm. William invited John back over to visit with his parents, and everything seemed to be going well for John. It was during this time where the elder McSwans made a fatal error, which I say that very almost sarcastically because no, they did not make any mistakes here. Oh, just well, being careful yes. about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not blaming them right. for trusting John. Right. They were comfortable being transparent around him because he tricked them. Right. Just as a yeah. the clarifying fatal, statement. The fatal error was being fooled into trusting him. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's a swindler. Mm-hmm. He's literally spent 
so much time doing that. And right. Oh. Since his childhood forging yeah. teachers' signatures. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. So they told him that they'd recently made a bunch of lucrative property investments and hmm. that they not only had already made a bunch of money doing that, but they were set to make a bunch more because they were doing it like rental style. Yeah. yeah. And John wanted that money. But in order to get it, he'd have to get rid of his friend and his friend's parents who had welcomed him in with open arms. Jeez. So first oh. he concocted a plan to get rid of William, the guy who literally gave him multiple second chances at life. Just wow. so devastating. So sad. I William was guy. such a good guy. Yeah. He was such a kind man. John had rented a workshop on Gloucester Road where he planned to commit his misdeeds. So he was like, okay, how do I get William to the shop? On September 9th, 1944, wow. the two met up for drinks at the Goat, and John kind of schmoozed William into coming and checking out his new shop that he was super excited about. And considering the fact that he'd worked, like, as a mechanic, mm -hmm. you do engineering things, mm -hmm. William didn't have any reason to be suspect. And also, he played on his friend's care for him. Totally. To lure him to his death. So totally. I feel like that just takes a special kind of evil. He took full advantage of him in all the worst ways. Yeah, that makes right. me mad. Gosh. Once they were inside the shop, John grabbed a blunt object, most sources say a pipe, and struck William in the back of the head, knocking him out. Jeez. In order to make sure that he was dead, he slit William's throat. So this Jeez. is really gross, but John claimed that he then took a cup and filled it with the blood pouring from his friend's body and drank the blood. Wow. Oof. Yeah, that makes my stomach churn. This is like so like it it has all of the tellings of like a personal killing. I mean, it is. It's a friend. Mm -hmm. It's a close friend. But it's like as if he had done something wrong to him. And right. I, like I this wonder, is like a revenge of yeah, some kind. But it's I, like I wonder if there's some kind of a bipolar extreme, obviously bipolar or like extreme like you already said he's a sociopath like. We'll get into this later. I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. No. Okay. He's okay. full of it. Okay. He's wow. full of it. He's okay. completely full of it. So that's my spoiler. Sorry, guys. <laughs> he then placed William's body into a 40-gallon drum full of sulfuric acid. Immediately, the acid went to work, emitting harsh, toxic fumes. John ran out of the shop for some fresh air and waited a little bit. And when the fumes died down, he placed a lid on the drum and left, waiting for it to like do its thing. Wow. Once William's body was reduced to a lumpy sludge, which that's what the book I read called it, which makes me, once again, mm. very nauseous, he poured it down the floor drain in the shop and then relished in the euphoric feeling of successfully completing the first part of his mission. He was very proud of himself. My goodness, that is just so So dark heartless. And heartless. Heartless. Heart yeah. Even? Yeah. Yeah. Really oh. sad. Next, John went to William's parents with a story. So the McSwans were actually Scottish, and they had moved to London years prior. So John went to them and explained that William had fled to Scotland to avoid the military draft. Mm, he had, is that legit? No. That, he killed him. No, I mean, but was that like a legit thing that people yes. did? Yes. Okay. I wow. mean, you would be considered a fugitive if you got caught doing that. Uh -huh. And if it was revealed, you would be wanted that is wow. a crime. Oh. But that's what he said that he'd done. Mm. So he had actually mastered William's signature, and he began to supply William's parents with forged letters from William to keep up the ruse for long enough to let the McSwan wealth continue to grow. Wow. With this oh whole my. charade going exactly like he had planned, John was able to gain access to the rental income that the McSwans were making from their various properties, and he would just skim a little bit off of every payment allowing him to experience a life of luxury and fancy suits and even a car once again. And the McSwans were none the wiser. Right. They had no idea. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. This dude is just the worst. Just selfish. Yeah. It's all about money. John would check in on them and charm his way around all of their more pointed questions about William's, like, eventual return from Scotland. But overall, they really did just trust him, mm -hmm. despite their growing concerns about the fact that the draft was over and William still wasn't coming home. Mm. So he managed to keep this up for several, several months. Jeez. On July 2nd, 1945, John went to go visit the McSwans, and when they were not paying attention, he ambushed them and killed them in the same manner that he'd killed their son. He struck them over the head with a blunt object and then slit their throats and claimed that he also drank their blood. 
Some sources say that he somehow managed to lure them to the shop. Mm -hmm. I think that those sources said that basically he said, William's going to be here, but like he's a fugitive. And so let's all meet here and figure out what we're going to do next so that he doesn't get in trouble. Mm. And so they went there. Other sources said that he killed them at their own home and then brought them. Yeah. Either way. To the shop. Either way, they did end up in the shop. Okay. So he, when they got there, he placed each of their bodies into individual 40-gallon drums full of sulfuric acid, closed the lids, and then waited for the acid to dissolve their remains. Once this process was complete, he dumped their melted remains down the floor drain just like he'd done to their child months prior. Yeah. To cover up their disappearance, John informed the McSwan's landlady that they were taking an extended trip to America and that all of their mail, as well as William's mail, needed to be forwarded to him so that he could manage and take care of anything they needed while they were away. Hmm. He not only managed to become power of attorney over the McSwan finances after perfecting signatures, but he also managed to collect William's pension checks. No way. He made somewhere around 8,000 pounds by selling all of their properties, which is over 441,000 pounds today or somewhere around $500,000. Yeah. It's a lot of money. That is a ton of money. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe we're just poor, but like that seems like a lot of money. For anybody who makes significant money, they would say a half a million dollars. It's relative. Significant money. (laughs) It's a relative. We're millionaires. You know what? If we ever came into that kind of money, we would be millionaires. You're only half of a millionaire. No, we're millionaires at heart. (laughs) We would never have to work another day in our lives. (laughs) We could make it at least 10 years that way. That's crazy. (laughs) In this economy? (laughs) Well, okay. Okay, so John is now a pretty wealthy man. But given his taste for expensive things and his troubles with gambling, the money would not last super long. He oh, also geez. was getting, I know. Oh, man. Yeah, he's the worst. So oh. he also was getting nervous about keeping his shop for too long. So he decided to move his operation to a different workshop at 2 Leopold Road, Crawley in Sussex. I feel like that's the opposite of what you want to do. Like- he was worried that people might come sniffing around. And I don't <sighs> know, I think honestly he was just... It was like kind of self-induced, kind of paranoia. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't want them to find anything here, yeah. so I'm going to move. So I'm going to move and let somebody else move into the space. Right. <laughs> I just right. feel like that's not the, yeah, that's worse, but maybe not. I don't know. This is the perfect note, like moment for this thing that bothers me so much about this case. One mm-hmm. of the many things is that when a lot of people talk about this case and John Hague in particular, mm-hmm. they call him this like criminal mastermind. And as this mm-hmm. goes on, you'll see how much of a not mastermind John right. Haig was. Right. He was not a mastermind. The guy was selfish and lucky. Yeah. And he was skilled a short- in a couple of things, but that mm-hmm. doesn't make you a mastermind. Mm-hmm. It just makes you skilled at a couple of things that mm-hmm. help you get away with stuff for a minute. Right. But he got, he's been caught multiple times now. Right. Like, he's already served jail time. Yeah, People yeah. make it like he's this like foolproof, like criminal genius <laughs> when they talk about him. And I'm like, no, that's that's like a character he was playing. He was yeah. not any of those things. He, he was just them. greedy. He fools them just like that too, apparently. He was greedy and lazy is what yeah. he was. So Jeez. that's my that's my moment. So he moved the drums and a huge amount of sulfuric acid to his new shop and began scouting for his next victim. Around this time, John was basically living at the George Hotel and would look around for other guests that showed any indicators of wealth. And it wouldn't be long <laughs> before he found his next targets plural, Archibald and Rose Henderson. John contacted the Hendersons when he saw a property of theirs listed for sale. Hmm. He quickly gained their trust, employing his charm and charisma and his knowledge of classical music and like sort of the finer things in life. Mm -hmm. He convinced them that he was a wealthy engineer who had recently moved to the area for a job. And from there, their fate was pretty much sealed. John offered to pay more money than they were asking for for the property. They were also so impressed with John that they actually invited him to come and play piano for their open house party at their new home. Wow. So like they really believed. They trusted him. And like he was a good pianist. Like he actually was very skilled and he was very knowledgeable from his private education as a kid. So while Hmm. the Hendersons were not as wealthy as the McSwans, they were definitely doing all right for themselves. Mr. Henderson was a doctor and had a successful practice. 
After some time back and forth, in February of 1948, John convinced Dr. Henderson to come check out a project that he was working on at his workshop. He joined him, and as soon as they walked into the dingy, dank workshop, John pulled out a revolver from his pocket, a revolver that he'd stolen from the Henderson's home, and shot Archibald Henderson in the head with it, killing him instantly. Jeez. He quickly placed his body in a 40-gallon drum of acid, closed the lid, and went back to the Henderson home to figure out what to do about Rose. Mm. When he returned to their home, John put on a big show, saying that Dr. Henderson had suddenly gotten very sick and that Rose needed to come to his bedside right away. It's urgent. So Rose was like, oh my gosh, of course. So she hopped up and John led her off to go see her husband. He drove her to the workshop and led her inside. I think Mm. that she was just worried and confused and like didn't have the opportunity to fully take stock of her surroundings. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if he had to have told her some other lies as well. I think like I've left him here because I couldn't find an ambulance or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, but he got her in there. And so the second that the door to the shop closed, he shot Rose Henderson and killed her and -hmm. put her body in another drum of acid. He claimed that he also drained and drank their blood as well. Man, what a just. That will come up later. There's some skepticism on that. Well, even that. That's not my reaction. My reaction to the blood drinking thing is just like kind of more eye rolly. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, but just the the weird personal murders. I know. Like I just that just that bothers me so in so many ways. Like killing strangers, still not good. Right. But obviously. at least there's like a degree of of separation. Mm-hmm, like detachment. It makes sense that someone would be detached and like just if they're going to have selfish motives like to do it I don't know maybe not because people people kill family and all that I think there's something uniquely wrong there's something uniquely wrong with the various types of homicide obviously right and there's something that hits really close to home Mm -hmm. about homicides that are personal yeah where it's like any level of relationship I feel like there's an added layer of humanity Mm -hmm. to it that a murderer has to reckon with. Yeah. And the fact that he seemed to be so unbothered by it is yeah. just really upsetting. Cause mm. like these people really trusted him and they valued him and they cared about him and that didn't matter. He just wanted right. their money. Yeah. From, from basically the beginning, mm-hmm. like outside of one friend that was his first victim, everybody else, he, and and inevitably that's why he kept his friendship with them was to do that. Mm-hmm. Everybody else became a friend for the purpose of him manipulating them into him getting rich off of their murders. So terrible. Yeah. So the Hendersons had actually moved into a hotel also. I mm-hmm. guess that was the thing. Like a lot yeah. of people, and I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was back in the day where like wealthy people would say, I'm going to move into this really fancy hotel. And all of the, it's basically mm. like an upgrade to an apartment. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Where it's like you get all of your needs met, all your meals are cooked. Yeah. There's a bar downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's very fancy. And so to conceal his crimes, John went to the hotel. He stole all of their valuables from their room so that he could sell them for a profit. And then he paid their bill, making it appear as though the couple had just like moved on with life. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So when John returned to the workshop the next day, he noticed that the acid had not fully dissolved both bodies. Hmm. There were bits of clearly human flesh and bone floating around in the acid, as well as uh, they believe it was partial foot bones, Hmm. potentially. But there's a little bit of dispute on that. Sure. Instead of waiting longer or adding more acid or whatever disgusting thing he could have done, he decided to dump what he could down the drain. And then he threw the rest of the remains into the alley, like around the corner of his shop, thinking that the stray cats and dogs would take care of the rest. Oh, geez. So like, yeah, you you heard that right. He dumped oh. melted human remains into yeah. the streets of London, hoping animals would just eat it. There's, he's already done a few times now, very just gross burials, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, like, unsacred in every way. Oh, yeah. This is like the next level of low to just think of it as like, Refuse Garbage. that goes in the yeah. street. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's confusing. And also, once again, another knock against him being intelligent. 
I know. By any means, because that's just like that's stupid. Why would you? Why would you expect animals were going to do that in the streets of London? So many things wrong with him. So to further cover his tracks, John wrote a letter to Rose's brother Berlin. In the letter, John claimed that Dr. Henderson was under fire for performing an illegal abortion. And so the Hendersons decided to go hide out in South Africa and that they had left their estate and all financial control to their good friend, John Haig. So he used his actual name. Hmm. He sold off a bunch of the Hendersons' belongings and gained control of their finances, earning himself another 8,000 pounds. Wow. So a similar value yes. as to what he made yeah. after killing the McSwans. So this is a detail that really bothers me for some reason. John kept the Hendersons' dog hmm. as a pet. Because he loves pets. I don't know why that bothers me so much, hmm. but that feels like an added, because of like, I think of how much so many people love their pets and mm-hmm. how much of a member of a family a pet can be. Yeah. And it's like in their case, I don't know if they had any human children, but like apparently they adored their dog. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the equivalent of him like taking their kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like obviously not completely, but you get it. Yeah. It's the There's something personal about it that feels violating. Yes. He kept their dog. Yes. It's the same like like gross feeling you feel watching. I know this is a Disney movie, but like mm-hmm. watching Tangled and seeing the the witch take the child and mm-hmm. pretend like she's hers the whole time. Yeah. And it's like, or she's not a witch, whatever she is. Yeah, she's a witch, whatever. Close enough. Yeah. Some creepy old lady that sings a song to a flower. Um, (laughs) no spoilers that's all in the first five minutes of the movie um (laughs) uh but yeah it's it's that it's like this oh no like this is this is very just yeah it's just gross that's the best word for right now that Mm -hmm. i can think of Mm -hmm. agreed on the same page Mm. well and during this whole time he's also running some smaller schemes that mm-hmm. he's like, they're obviously way less high stakes than murder. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's still making money on the side. And I'm pretty sure that for at least a portion of his murder spree, he was still working as an accountant. Wow. Or so at an accounting firm or whichever yeah. one it was. So, so he's, like, he's, he's rolling. serious money. He is. And he actually managed to snag himself another fiance somehow. Huh. He actually took a bunch of Rose Henderson's expensive clothing and gave like a bunch of it to his fiance Barbara, mm-hmm. who had no idea of what John wow. was up to. And like, she, she kind of like Betty. Yeah. yeah. Like just like Betty, she thought that he was like successful. Mm-hmm. He swindled her as well. So as the next year came and went, John once again, blew through most of the money mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. He continued purchasing expensive clothing as well as living in the Onslow court hotel in South Kensington. And he kept up his gambling. And so by late winter of 19, 19- 48, he decided to hunt for another victim. Mm-hmm. After a short time, he decided to target a woman by the name of Olive Duran Deacon. Olive was a resident at the Onslow Court Hotel as well, and she was well-loved by everyone else who lived and worked there. She was the widow of a war hero, and in her youth, she was also a suffragette. Hmm. So, like, she was kind of a cool lady. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what um, specific movements she took part in, but she did go to jail for throwing a brick through a window during a protest. Nice. Which like, I'm like, heck yeah, Olive. (laughs) Mess it up, Olive. (laughs) So at this point of the story, she was 69 years old. So one day she approached John. She had struck up a bit of a friendship with him Mm -hmm. over the time that he'd been living there. And she was convinced that he was a wealthy up and coming inventor. And she had an idea for an an invention that Hmm. she would like for him to help develop. She had an idea for producing false fingernails that she kind of had like an early Mm -hmm. sort of model for. And she believed that John could bring the idea fully to life and that he could help her market the product as well. So develop and Mm. market this idea that I have. Because at this time, you know, it's like post-World War. There's kind of like a sense of culture is being reformed a little bit. Mm -hmm. People are wanting to experience like glitz and glamour again yeah, and that kind of stuff. Like a value was once again being placed on things that had to kind of be pushed aside during the war. Right. right. And so she was on to a really great idea. Yeah. Jeez. So on February 18th, 1949, he told Olive, you know what? I'm in, let's do this. 
which as we mm. can all guess at this point, he was not in. Right. He had a different idea. Right. He invited her to join him at his workshop to show her the progress that he'd made on developing the false fingernails. When she arrived at the shop, she walked in dressed in her signature fur coat and wearing fine jewelry mm-hmm. when suddenly John shot and killed her. Yeah, he took off gosh. her coat and her jewels, and I don't know what he was planning on doing with the coat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm pretty positive he wanted to give it to Barbara. Yeah. But we'll kind of talk about that in a second. So okay. he placed Olive's body into a drum of acid and left. He returned within a day or so and disposed of her melted remains the same way he had with the Hendersons, Mm -hmm. partially down the drain and partially outside of the shop. Oh, no. But this would be the murder that would unravel the Mm -hmm. whole operation. Thank God. Good. Finally. So within two days of Olive's murder, she was reported missing. Mm -hmm. I think that John actually believed that he was invincible. Like, I really think he did because it was actually his idea to drive Olive's closest friend, Constance Lane, to the police station so that she could report Olive's disappearance. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. While he was there, he Mm. was asked if he knew Olive and he told the detectives, yes. And we had plans to meet up on the morning that people noticed that she was missing. And we were going to work through an invention blueprint for a project we're doing together, but she never showed up. Hmm. And it was this move that put him in the investigators like on their radar. Right. A policewoman named Sergeant Lamborn got a weird feeling about John. And so she decided to dig into his background and quickly discovered that John's past was full of fraud charges and prison time. Yeah. Which prompted her to dig a little bit deeper. Meanwhile, John returned to the workshop to dump out the remains from the drum of acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also decided to sell Olive's valuables that he'd taken off of her body. He didn't sell the coat. He got Mm. it dry cleaned, but he sold her jewelry and made 110 pounds Mm. at like a local pawn shop. Wow. Interestingly enough, Rose Henderson's brother around this exact same time started getting a really weird feeling about this John Haig character Mm -hmm. that he'd never heard of before his sister's quote, sister's letter. Right. right. And so he actually reached out to the police Mm -hmm. and asked them for help connecting him with his sister and brother-in-law and mentioned this weird John Haig guy. And so immediately they're like, connection, yes, boom. Yes, Once police put two and two together, John was immediately suspect number one in both of the disappearances. Good. Within a few short days, police were granted permission to investigate John's workshop on Leopold Road. They broke down the front door and quickly discovered an empty 40-gallon drum with a pin at the bottom of it. Hmm. It was like a decorative pin, probably for a hat, they assumed. Okay. Yeah. They also discovered a rubber apron, a gas mask, mostly empty glass containers of sulfuric acid, an empty revolver, and a receipt from a dry cleaner for a fur coat matching Olive's favorite signature coat. The coat. The coat. So all in all, John, for whatever reason, had all these personal items belonging to the victims, as Mm -hmm. well as the murder weapon and method Mm -hmm. of disposal left out in the open, as well as his very suspicious interactions with the police at the station. Yeah. So on February 28th, police went to the Onslow Court Hotel and invited John to join them at the station for more questioning, and they would not have to wait long before John began confessing. Whoa, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So John, completely convinced that he could not be charged for any of these murders that he committed, decided to fully (laughs) confess to everything. He believed. Wow. This, whenever people call him a genius, I'm like, where? Show me where. (laughs) So earlier I had mentioned that he'd spent his time in prison looking into potential criminal defenses Mm -hmm. while he was figuring out how he was going to like pull off his murder for profit scheme without getting caught. And that's when he stumbled on the term corpus delecti Mm -hmm. in a legal textbook that he found in the prison library. John understood this to mean no body, no crime, Mm -hmm. meaning that if he could erase all evidence of a body altogether, then he couldn't be charged with any crimes. What this term actually translates to is the body of the crime. And it essentially means that there would need to be proof that a specific crime occurred in order for someone to be charged with it. Mm -hmm. So another example of this would be like apart from the murders in the story is like if someone's going to be charged with shoplifting, it would need to be proven that something was stolen. Yeah. Yeah. And that it is in the possession of the person being charged. Yes. That makes sense. That would need to be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. So pretty simple. So it wasn't that John needed to dissolve all evidence of a body in order to avoid jail time. 
but that any and all evidence of any and all of the murders would need to be proven in order to establish that a murder had taken place. Right. That makes sense? Yes. So this nuance led John basically to just like totally spill the beans. (laughs) They like told him like, what are you talking about? Corpus delecti does not mean no body, no crime, you dummy. (laughs) Like that is not a thing. Yeah. So he confessed to each murder in like super great detail. Yeah. And like very much like larger than life in this kind of like dramatic, almost like monologue Uh to executive inspector Albert Webb. He also confessed to three additional murders that were never able to be proven, but these confessions were far less detailed and everybody kind of believes these did not happen. Yeah. Detectives and the prosecution would later point out that he likely, allegedly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) falsely Mm -hmm. confessed to these three murders to try and make it appear as though his crimes were random and that he was not killing for the sake of financial gain. He also asked Webb what the likelihood was of ever getting out of Broadmoor, which was a psychiatric hospital. And so the further assumption at this point was that he was trying to get an insanity plea Mm -hmm. to avoid serious jail time or the death penalty once he realized that he could, in fact, be charged and convicted of multiple counts of murder. Yeah. (laughs) So a point Uh. I would say he further illustrated by telling all kinds of stories about how he had dreams full of blood. That a man in his dreams went underneath the trees that were seeping blood. Mm -hmm. That the man held out a cup to collect the blood and then handed it to John, telling him to drink. Many people believe that the dreams were a lie. Mm -hmm. And that he most likely never drank the blood of his victims. But that was, once again, a lie to pad the potential for him to get committed instead of executed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it was Mm. back to the workshop for the investigators. Yeah. When they searched the yard outside of the workshop, they discovered a pile of sludge. Hmm. So content warning, you guys already know what happened, but there's something personally that I feel like when you hear the details and like sort of clinical explanations of these sorts of things, it can just be extra unsettling for Mm -hmm. some people. And so like this is, I'm not going to be gratuitous, but it is just really by nature, very gruesome. Yeah. So if you don't want to hear the details of that, you can skip ahead a minute or two. Just going to give you a That's second. Good. That's good. Yeah. So the leading pathologist on the case was Dr. Keith Simpson. And on Tuesday, March 1st, when the pile of sludge was found, he first noticed what he believed to be a human gallstone. Mm. He had the sludge taken in its fullness to the lab to undergo analysis. And it was learned that in the pile of sludge were three human gallstones, 28 pounds of human fat, Hmm. 18 bone fragments, a portion of a left foot, two vertebral discs, complete upper and lower dentures, a lipstick container, and the handle of a red plastic bag. The dentures were sent off to a local dentist who used Olive Deacon Duran's records and confirmed that they did belong to her. Mm. They were also able to reconstruct the foot that they found and they were able to fit it into her shoe. Yeah. So like (laughs) they determined the partial foot. So they, they basically got a positive ID. Yes. That's crazy. Wild. In like the forties. I know. It's really impressive. Almost fifties, but even still like forensics were not, (laughs) not like they're today, not even close. And so it's like very impressive. Also, can we just appreciate the whole thing that he's thinking no body, no crime, and then doesn't fully get rid of the body. Like there's still evidence of a person and to the point that they can be positively ID'd. Like he's just not, not good. (laughs) I know. Not smart. I know. Yeah. Worthy of making fun of because he's, you know, what a loser. What a loser. So all of this is obviously very damning, but John's confessions, like I mentioned, weren't totally adding up. With the confession of Olive's murder alone taking two full hours and like the other very, very detailed confessions about the five other known murders and then the three random murders, Mm -hmm. investigators believed that at, at the very least they had enough to charge him and send the case to trial. Yeah. Which they did. <laughs> sure, yes. It seems seems so, just from the little bit that I've heard so far. Yes. So John's trial began on July 18th, 1949 at the Old Town Hall. Over 4,000 residents from around the area showed up to try and get a seat in the courtroom. Wow. With some people even attempting to sell their seats. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which like, obviously, this was a sensation. This was a media sensation. Yeah. And so, of course, like, there was a ton of public interest. Yeah. 
And it made the whole setting a little bit additionally chaotic, like on top yeah. of everything else that we do know. Mm-hmm. It was like a frenzy, kind of like Burke and Hare. Yeah. Very frenzied. Well, and there's seems to be it's 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 kind of appropriate to think about people making a spectacle of it and like mm-hmm. wanting to sell their seats and make money off mm-hmm. of it, off of this guy who you couldn't just put it on YouTube. Right. Like you can now. Right. This is a lot like the circus of it seems appropriate, even though it's also kind of messed up. Yeah. But that's the whole thing. It feels very human. And and his whole like his whole criminal career is a circus. That's the whole thing. It's mm-hmm. and it's to feed the continuing circus of him putting on a a show. A show. A yeah. performance. Hmm. Yeah. So various media outlets battled out to be the one to like break the story and to be the one that would like air out some of the more sensational details. Hmm. So much so that the editor at the Daily Mirror, Sylvester Bolum, served three months in prison for contempt of court because he released certain sensitive details about the case before the trial began. They gave him prison time. Wow. Yeah, and like the the, uh, publication, the Daily Mirror also got fined for it. Like, So more people got in trouble for it too. So John couldn't actually afford his legal fees. And so I'm pretty sure it was the Daily Mirror, but one publication agreed to pay his legal fees in exchange for John to participate in like a tell-all interview for an article that would later be published. Wow. We'll pay your fees, but you got to give an exclusive yeah. interview to us. And he said, all right, cool. Jeez. So I'm going to kind of zip through the trial because it really is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. The judge presiding over the case, Justice Humphreys, kept an orderly courtroom as best as he could. And he, a jury, and the anxious public watched in awe as 33 witnesses came forward and testified. The prosecution worked to prove that John had premeditated these murders, relying on several pieces of available evidence, from the remains found at the crime scene to the victim's belongings, and to documents detailing John Haig's control over the financial affairs of the McSwans and the Hendersons. Mm. Which, like, that's a pretty rock-solid yes, that is a smoking indicator gun. of yeah. guilt, for Oof. sure. The defense tried to prove that John was insane and that he was not committing these crimes with any level of premeditation or malice aforethought. Mm-hmm. They brought in a medical expert who stated that during his interaction with John, there was some evidence of insanity based off of John's kind of statements about his bloody dreams. And he also made some weird claims like he drank to, drank his own urine and stuff like that. Mm. But like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Does not necessarily make you crazy. It was revealed later in the trial that this particular doctor had only spent a little less than two hours with John. And so the idea that he could come to a full professional opinion uh, yeah. in that short of a time frame, especially considering that this particular patient did some truly horrendous things and that he had a long history of fraudulent behavior and activity was yeah. enough to cast doubts in the minds of the jury mm. that John was anything but a greedy monster who killed for gain. Yeah. Who would just say whatever he wanted to say. Exactly. To make people believe what he wanted them to believe. Exactly. Bingo. Hmm. So after around 24 hours since the beginning of the trial, it was time for deliberation. After deliberating, do you want to guess how long they deliberated? Six minutes. Up a little bit, but not much. 20 minutes. Less. 15 minutes. Up. (laughs) 17. 16, 17 (laughs) minutes. They deliberated for 17 full minutes. Wow. And then the jury handed over their verdict to the judge. (laughs) John George Haig was found to be guilty on all charges and was sentenced to death by hanging. While he was being held at the Wandsworth prison to await execution, the Home Secretary ordered a full psychological examination in order to be fully certain that this was a just sentence Mm -hmm. and that John was in fact sane, like, and could stand to serve such a final sentence. Three renowned psychiatrists conducted this examination and determined that John was of sound mind and that all of the evidence of insanity was just some clever acting on John's part. Mm. Three separate psychologists. Wow. On August 10th, 1949, John Haig was taken to the gallows and hung for his crimes, but not before making one last little splash. Before John's death, he was approached by a local waxworks who asked if they could take a death mask cast of John's face for a wax statue. Though the statue wouldn't be complete before his execution, John was elated at this request, and so he agreed. Of course he was. He was super thrilled. I get to live on. Oh my gosh, that's messed up. He also donated one of his favorite suits for the statue to wear. 
And so the wax figure of John Haig, the infamous acid bath murderer, was a staple feature in the Chamber of Horrors exhibit in the Madame Tussauds uh, Wax oh. Museum until 2016. Oh my gosh. Isn't that in like Dallas, Texas? I think that one's London. Is that? Oh, okay. 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 I, yeah. I'm pretty sure that one's London. Wow. So he got to live on in some bizarre way for decades after his execution. So for today's story, I got a lot of my information from a book called The Acid Bath Murderer by Rebecca Lowe and Jack Rosewood. It's a super quick read. And so definitely pick that up if you want a little bit more info on this extremely unique and horrifying case. And that is what I have for you today. Goodness. That is like, oh, it, 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 I feel like there's a lesson in there that it's taken us good, so long to mm-hmm. learn in society. That if you platform someone for doing evil, wicked things, they feel like they've won. Mm-hmm. And that makes me mad. Well, and you motivate people to copy. Yeah. That's just. Ugh. It's one thing to document. And I think just like by the nature of true crime and like enjoying learning these stories, mm-hmm. I think that there is a very, very, very rail thin line between being interested in it, wanting to understand it, mm-hmm. wanting like loving humans and wanting to understand yeah. who they are yeah. and how things work and stuff like that versus this strange exploitation of evil that rewards evil behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And like I say exploitation with like a a different spin on a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Like they take this because it's sensational and people will be interested in it. And they amplify these absolute just doorknobs into <laughs> these infamous super villain heroes. Yeah. Like archetypes for villainy that right. people copy. Right. And like that's why when people talk so schmoozy about like Ted Bundy or Dahmer or any of these guys that people are like, oh my gosh, he's so hot. Or like, he's my favorite. Right. I'm like, can you don't please? Yeah. Let's not do that. That's, that's a- n- weird way of of having uh, of being a fan of something it's mm-hmm. like this is evil and messed up and wrong you and can I, be a, you can be a ugh. a fan of a genre without being a fan of a type of person mm-hmm. and yeah even even the nuance of like this is one of my favorite true crime stories because mm-hmm. of xyz versus he's my favorite serial killer right there's a lot of difference in yeah, yeah. seemingly nuanced statements. Yeah. I feel like rewarding him with a statue was a bad idea. That personally. Was a, especially because he knew about it. I get the human like, interest. Yeah. But, totally. The yeah. human interest makes sense in the same way that you would want to study a disease. Right. To be able to say that isn't, that is not a good thing to have. Right. We should learn how to eradicate it. Not how do we multiply it and make it worse? Right. Or like listen to a true crime podcast or read a true crime book. Right. Yeah. But anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent. Sorry, patrons. That's okay. Our our patrons know. They know. They understand. (laughs) We withhold a lot of tangents. This is true. Oh, well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story today. Thank you guys so much for being patrons. And Mm -hmm. uh, without any further ado, please make sure that you leave a nice comment on uh, the social media post on this. And maybe, maybe this one will be one that people uh, are excited about and they want to share around um, and get people to hop on the Patreon bus as well. So that'd be awesome. Thank you guys. We really do appreciate you so much. Yeah. With that, we will see you later this week for another doozy. That's not an exclusive, not an exclusive, but it will be a doozy. I can guarantee it. Yes, it will. (laughs) All right. Thanks guys. guys. Bye.